0: I'm super, super, super excited to tell you about my sponsor, Southwest Trading Company. Southwest Trading Company is a native-owned business located at 1306 East 11th Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you've never been to Southwest Trading Company, you need to go check them out. Right now, if you can, or after this podcast, or during the podcast, but either way, go check that store out. They have a lot of great items from different artists from all around, like jewelry, blankets, art, clothing, cedar boxes, indigenous home decor, car accessories, totes, and so much more. You could spend hours in this store. I'm not kidding. I went to the first time and I think I spent like maybe a couple hours maybe just looking around at everything they have. I mean, it's so unique. If you haven't yet, southwest trading company also has a facebook page so if you have not yet go like it and follow their page to keep up with all new items and events they have going on at the store once again i'm super excited that we get to build together the location for southwest trading company is 1306 east 11th street tulsa oklahoma go check it out everybody thank you welcome back to Oki podcast. On this episode, I have an amazing guest. Uh she is Chef Nico Williams and she is the owner of Burning Burning Cedar Indigenous Foods.
1: Hello, it's good to be here.
0: Thanks for coming on.
1: Yeah, of course.
0: I know we've kind of been back and forth trying to I know. Trying to do it. <laughs> it's
1: been a long time coming. <laughs> There's a lot of anticipation built up here. not so much. I hope I'm not horribly disappointed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, but uh, I remember just kind of seeing you around on Facebook, I think, mm-hmm. back when I was like, when I first asked you, um, I always found that indigenous chefs are, I always had a curiosity about um, what they like to cook and just everything that they into their meals and stuff because we always have a different I guess uh outlook maybe maybe perspective on just things in general too so yeah. you know because food is healing um and we do a lot with our foods you know and I mean there's good and bad you mm-hmm. know like <laughs> like we were talking before you know there's so much junk out there and to try to find a way to Create, you know, these indigenous types of foods, you know, and with you, it's healing. A lot of healing that goes into it as well. Like it's, it's a lot of food that heals and stuff. But I think you're. I had you know Jojo Horse Chief. Uh huh. I had her on here a few months back, and we were talking about some indigenous foods. That Jojo's
1: awesome. Yep, that she She helps me out sometimes. Oh, for real?
0: Oh yeah. yeah, that's That's what she was saying.
1: Yeah.
0: And I remember she brought you up and I was like, yeah, she's she's coming on the show soon. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but we were talking about some of the dish, the dishes she does and stuff, so um I found it very interesting to just kind of just have that conversation with her about foods and you know, I'm very excited that you wanted to come on and she would just chop it up. Yeah. So, um now are you originally from here? You
1: I've been in Oklahoma since 2003. Oh yeah. Um but I didn't grow up here. Um, my mom's f- uh, family on her dad's side are all from here. That's the my Cherokee side of the family. Um, but I grew up in California oh. and then I went to like middle school and high school in Arizona. Mm-hmm. so it's pretty far away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I definitely grew up away from my Cherokee community. and um, you know when I moved back here, I was like 20 years old and um, that's when, you know, started to be able to actually participate in my culture, really, because there just wasn't a lot of ways to do that growing up in California. Mm. So when I moved back here, um, like the first thing, you know, I started connecting with was like going to wild onion dinners in the spring. And, um, you know, going over to my friend's house and her mom would be making Indian tacos and teach me how to make fry bread and stuff like that. And so like that was, you know, food's such a great way to learn about different people's cultures. You know, when you Mm -hmm. go and eat all these different ethnic foods, you feel like, you know, something about their culture, but you know, for me, it was a real way to connect to my own heritage, to learn about it through the the foods that are important to
0: us. Very true. Um, have you, and then you've, have you just always wanted to kind of get involved with foods and like, did you always like cooking? And- I
1: mean, yeah. I, like, I grew up, um, you know, we, we always ate dinner around the dinner table as a family. We always made dinner from scratch, you know. I mean, my mom would use like, you know, the occasional like sloppy Joe seasoning packet, you know? So mm-hmm. it wasn't all like completely of the earth from, you know, like from scratch. But I mean, she made dinner every day, you know, like that's kind of, it was uh, a way of being raised that is actually, you know, a lot less common than I realized at the time, you know, to actually sit down and have dinner with your family every night. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I just grew up cooking. You know, we were always in the kitchen or like my mom and my grandmother both, um, always had gardens. And Mm. so we were always connected to, to food in that way. And so it was always an important part of, of, you know, our family dynamic. And then, you know, I got into the restaurant industry when I was, um, I was still a teenager, like 17 and, At the time, I was, like, doing front of the house hostessing and, uh, you know, working, trying to get to be a bartender. Like, that was my goal at the beginning was (laughs) to be a bartender because I thought that was cool and, like, you made a lot of money. But, um, you know, eventually just being in the restaurant industry, I kind of fell in love with, like the environment of the kitchen, you know, that was like the dangerous, you know, dirty jokes and fire and, you know, like yelling and, you know, loud music. And so it was way more fun back there than it was at the hostess stand. So I always found myself gravitating back to the kitchen. And so it kind of just evolved into a career for me.
0: Wow. What was that restaurant you worked at? The first one?
1: The first one was called Mezcal. And it was in Scottsdale, Arizona. Mm. And so it was like this really authentic Oaxacan restaurant um, at a time that like that really wasn't a thing back in. I mean, I'll date myself here, but I guess it was like 2002, I think, that I was working there. 2001 or 2002. And that was before, you know, anybody was really talking about authentic regional Mexican cuisine. You know, when you said Mexican food, it was just like Tex-Mex, you know, what everybody thinks about. But this place was like really legit Oaxacan food with, um, moles and things like that. And so I, I just, I fell in love with all that. That's, that's an influence that's kind of stuck with me. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, I just kind of hopped around to all kinds of different places.
0: (laughs) You got in the kitchen on that one.
1: I didn't ever get in the kitchen at, at Mm -hmm. Mezcal. Um, I was too, I was just, I was a baby, mm. <laughs> was a little baby back Oh, yeah, never. Yeah. yeah. Um. There, I, I was a hostess and a bar back. Mm-hmm. Um, and But my first kitchen, really, like my first legit kitchen was Petroleum Club here in Tulsa, which mm. uh, doesn't exist anymore. But it was downtown, and I kind of like fudged my way into getting a job as a, like the pantry cook. So you just make salads and dessert and, you know, plate desserts. It's the like at entry bottom level on the line. And it turned out like it, it was one of those things where once I got into that position and started doing it, it just clicked. And I was like, man, I should have been doing this for a long time. Cause it's just was something that came naturally, you know? Mm. And so that's where, you know, it really started to, um, you know, I kind of moved my way up the ranks just working the different stations and learning everything about, you know, the professional kitchen.
0: How long were you there for? Petroleum?
1: Petroleum Club, that was, I think I was only there for like a year, oh, if yeah. even that. I bounced around a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Always just trying to get to the next, like, you know, and I don't recommend this. this, like, This method of going about your career is really pretty stupid. But like, you know, if I were to give, you know, young cooks some advice, like stay someplace where you're learning and just take it slow and learn everything that you can about every single station without worrying so much about getting to that next title, you know. And a lot of it has to do with money. You know, it's like, oh, well, if I move from pantry to grill, then I get that extra like 50 cents an hour and then, you know, grill to saute. And and I I wanted I left there earlier than I should have because I wanted that sous chef title. So I left and and became the sous chef at a restaurant called Lola's Lola's at the Bowery.
0: How many positions are there in the kitchen?
1: Um. I mean, you're if at that you're,
0: bottom level. You first started. Yeah, the... when
1: you first start, that's like it's called garde manger, mm-hmm. um, and that's like that's the old school like French culinary hierarchy. That's almost like a, a you know um, levels of of military. It's like you start at garde manger, and then um, and I can't remember them all in order, but mm-hmm. you know, in in an old school French kitchen, there are all sorts of different stations like there's a station where you just make sauce Hmm. there's fish station where you only you know work with fish most of the kitchens around here you got pantry which is the salad station and then you got grill and saute and then expo is the person that like plates the food and and runs the line and Mm -hmm. that's usually your chef or your sous chef
0: is that what hell's kitchen i guess they yeah, work those yeah, stations? Yeah, they have all those different okay. stations. It's called and, stations. Um, okay.
1: Yeah, and and there is a hierarchy of stations. You know, there's like levels of difficulty. Like you don't get to run a hot station until you've mastered the cold station. You know, you have to work your way and like earn your stripes. What's the cold? <laughs> cold station is like that pantry station pan- where okay. you're, you're making salads mm-hmm. or you're plating desserts. It's generally seen as, like, you know, the entry level or something, like, easier because you're not actually having to cook anything. You're, you know, you're just responsible for keeping up with the pace of service and, you know, and plating things in, you know, a neat and timely way. You no. know, you got to be fast and you have to be clean. And then once you prove you can do that, then you work you work your way up to, like the more expensive stuff like proteins and <laughs> things like that. Oh, I wow. think that that's part of it. That factors in where it's like, you know, depending on the restaurant, of course mm-hmm. it's like, you know, if you screw up the salad, it's a lot cheaper to remake it than if you screw up the filet mignon. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that's <laughs> that factors in, but yeah, I definitely, um, like made a mad dash for, you know, it was like, one day I got in and was like, "Oh, I, I'm, I like this professional cooking thing, and I seem to be pretty good at it, so I'm, I'm gonna stick with this, and this will be my career." And so it's like I instantly thought, "I need to be the head chef of a restaurant like tomorrow," <laughs> <laughs> which is silly. Like, don't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, take your time and learn and grow and have experiences, and because one day you're gonna wake up and you're gonna be like the executive chef of a restaurant spending all day like looking at spreadsheets and you're going to be like, man, I wish I could just like work salad station. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the life. <laughs> so there's a lot
0: of responsibility that comes with that. Oh, totally. Is it the head chef or the yeah. – you, you, you said sous um, chef
1: too? Sous chef, uh, sous is the French term – basically means under. So you're the, Mm, like kind of the second in command to the, the head chef Mm. or the chef de cuisine chef de cuisine is like, you know, the, the top level chef in a restaurant that has creative input and control. And then like the executive chef would be someone that's like, they're the one that writes the menu. They make the decisions about what we're serving. They do all of the, like the, they're, the executive, you know, so they do all of those like business functions too. Whoa! So that's like where you have pretty much complete creative control, and you know, you're responsible for recipes and managing the staff and scheduling and all of that stuff. And then you know, you delegate as as you see fit. Wow! <laughs> it's a lot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. Like, yeah, I'd never like. I mean, I watched Hell's Kitchen, but. You know, you think that's just for TV, but mm-hmm. you know, in these, in these like, I guess these higher up uh, kitchens. I guess you never would think, you know, it's just like oh, that's just probably Texas Roadhouse or <laughs> something, you know. <laughs> but I mean, there's so many stations, there's so many different people back there, yeah. all um, and everybody communicating. has their role, you mm-hmm. know.
1: Like you have to know where you are in the kitchen. You know, you have to know what exactly you're responsible for, and you just work to master that, you know, Mm -hmm. and everybody plays a part like, and that's one of like the most stressful things about, about management and stuff like that is like, you know, the restaurant doesn't run if the dishwasher calls in sick, you Mm -hmm. know, like there's nobody that's not completely important to the functioning of a restaurant. You know, like if one piece of the team falls out, then You're, you know, you're going to have a really bad night. Wow. (laughs) So that's, that's part of it. It's like, and everybody has to work together Mm -hmm. for it to go off. Right. And there's a lot of ways it can go wrong.
0: (laughs) That's so crazy. It's just a living organism, I guess. Yeah. 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 That's a, that's a lot of great information. Um, And you've worked your, you've, you've, so you've done every station, I guess. To reach the executive. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I, yeah, I, over the years I've, I've worked them all and, and now, and then, you know, got myself to the point of being executive chef where you're in charge of everything. And, you know, second only to like the owners of the restaurant, you know, they have the ultimate vision for their, you know, their establishment and all of that. But, um, yeah, I did that for many years. And then, um, you know, what happened was COVID hit, And, you know, I, I didn't really have any plan for leaving the restaurant industry or, you know, doing anything different than, you know, just being a chef in that way. But Mm -hmm. then when COVID hit, um, we, you know, went into lockdown and quarantine and that whole thing. And then when, um, when they went to reopen the restaurant, you know, Unfortunately, even for a very short-lived amount of time, because we ended up having to go back into lockdown and mm-hmm. shut down again. But they decided to open and and not bring me back. Oh, so, really? Yeah. It was basically you know being laid off, mm-hmm. um, which you know was just for business reasons. But man, like that was like, oh man, what do I do now? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know. And at that point, I was like, well, I don't really want to get another kitchen job. You know, like. I could be a chef, you know, for somebody else, you know, for another restaurant, you know, find somebody that needs somebody to run their kitchen and I could do that. But maybe this is an opportunity to like do something that I'm really passionate about. And so that's, that's how I was able to like just really go all in on indigenous food and start the business and everything because um, I thought, well, You're never going to get a better opportunity than this right here, you know, Mm -hmm. like you get so caught up in the day to day of just keeping your restaurant going and worrying about your staff and worrying about the reservations and the stock and, you know, the schedule and everything like that. All of those little things that, that you have to get through just to keep a restaurant running, you know there's no time in there to think about or make plans for my own place or my own business or anything like that because i'm so focused on doing the job at hand and so having all that you know the bottom kind of drop out because of covid it really gave me some downtime to really sit down and be like okay well if i could do anything what would i do and i decided i i would i would focus on catering traditional indigenous food and you know teaching about it and spending my time learning about it and and you know just diving in as much as I can and making that like you know if I could make that my my full-time job wouldn't that be amazing well let's see if I can Mm -hmm. and so far it's been actually working (laughs) Nice. it was an experiment that I thought like well you know we'll try this and you know and if we're really struggling, then I can always go and get a job at a restaurant. But you know, the timing all just kind of aligned to where people are really finally, finally, you know, interested and in, in learning about indigenous food and highlighting native stories and all of that stuff. And so, you know, it was just a, a good position to be in, to where like people are finally seeing the value and what's been there this whole time.
0: Mm-hmm and you started this right after covid i guess or
1: yeah i mean officially mm-hmm. um you know i'd been for years probably since like maybe 2011 2012 i think mm-hmm. doing you know just kind of side hustle stuff <laughs> like you know people just knew that um, you know that i was a chef and that i'm native and that i like to you know cook traditional foods And so whenever they needed something or, or wanted to feature native food, they would hit me up and be like, Hey, can you do this? And I would do it in like what very little free time I would have, (laughs) you Mm. know, I'd have to like, if someone wanted me to, to do a special dinner at their house and highlight native food, I would have to, you know, cover my own shift at the restaurant and make sure I had time to like prep, prep all of that and whatever which I did like, you know, I, I always wanted to like take those opportunities cause I was passionate about that. Um, but in 2020, that was when I really was like, okay, let's just go all in on this and like really do the, all of the businessy stuff that you don't do, you know, when you're just doing something on the side. And that was like building a website and really, you know, thinking about branding and, you know, commissioning a really badass logo from uh, Dr. Jessica Harjo designed my logo Mm. and did an incredible job just like turning everything that Burning Cedar Indigenous Foods is about into like this just beautiful, you know, piece that can be put on stickers and the website and everything. It's just perfect. So it was all of that work that goes into like, you know, if I'm really going to make a go of this, I need to come up with sample menus and like, buy the LLC and, you know, do all of the licensing and stuff that you have to do to have, you know, a catering business. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, that was kind of how I spent, how I spent my quarantine was designing the website and, <laughs> and sending forms to the IRS. <laughs> it was really exciting, <laughs> but really it kind of was because it's yeah. like, okay, like I'm going to do this. Like, let's just, you know, can we like, can this be a business? Mm-hmm. And it was funny. Cause like when I first started kind of, um, I don't know, like workshopping this idea or talking to my friends and family about it, I, you know, it was kind of up in the air. It was like a lot of people actually said, well, what if it was just like you started a catering company and it was like catering by Nico. And then you said, Oh, also, we specialize in native food, you know, but not like go all in on the native thing. Like, because you don't know if you're really going to be able to get that much business. Like, do people even know, no one really knows what native food is. Who's going to want that. You need to make sure that you have all these options for people. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of just, that's an example of like one of those things that we, that we still have to, struggle against which is like our own internalized idea that people don't want this yeah that it's not good enough to be you can't you know that people wouldn't buy it you know that's why we don't have native restaurants or haven't for a long time now we've got native which is like kind of down the street from you Mm -hmm. which is awesome but like you know people ask me that they're like why aren't there native restaurants i'm like because people think that people don't want to eat native food. They don't know what it is. They think it's not good or that it's too like country or something or that it's not fancy enough or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so that was where I had to make that that big decision. Like, are we gonna like really commit to this and say like, yes, people do want native food. They want to learn about it. You know, we need to see our foods shown alongside the italian and the german and the chinese food and the mexican food that everybody thinks is great it's like what about the food from here it's just as good and just as contemporary and can be just as interesting as all of those foods there's no reason why it shouldn't be highlighted in the same ways you know mm-hmm. so that was what i was like man i'm going to i'm going to commit to that that this is about indigenous food you know, it's not just that's not just a a side piece to it. It's the main dish, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's I mean, that's basically you I mean, you just swallowed your heart and every I and I just talked about this with the uh, Duke on it's like there's always that self doubt. Mm-hmm. There's always this. Yeah. I mean, it does. It's you all the time questioning. Is this going to work? is it going to fail? Are people even going to enjoy it? Are they going to give, are they going to care? Yeah. Um, I mean, can this be sustainable in the society that we live in? Yeah. And I mean, it's, it, and then you, and then beyond that, you have people that, that, you know, probably, and they're like, well, well, you know, they tell you they, they feed that disbelief also. And so then it gets in your head I mean that's what like with a lot of people too, it's like you know they just don't they just don't go with they don't go through with a lot of stuff because it just gets to them mm-hmm. and it sucks, you know because yeah. it shouldn't be like that you know like if you truly want to do something go for it, do it, try yeah. it I mean put it out there if you fail like cool like that's not a that's nothing to cry about I mean that's yeah, it sucks, but you know take that as like well it failed right here. How could it become better? Like, what do I need to do to make it into a success? Like dissect it. Like, what did you do wrong? Did you do anything wrong? Did you market right? I mean, there's so many things that go into when you start your own thing. There's so many (laughs) things that go into it. Yeah. I mean, like you're talking about marketing, your logo, uh, business cards, LLC, a website, word of mouth, Networking, communication. There's so many things like because when we were talking, we were just talking about all this stuff, you know, about his artwork and everything. And, um, named Quarantine, you know, I was telling him, like, I just educated myself and all this and I just did it. Yeah. I was afraid. Yeah. And I was terrified that people will not like it, will not listen, will not dig it, will not share it. And then I'd just be hated. But I still did it because I was like, I'm doing it for myself. You know, if no one listens, cool. But if they do, cool. If they get something out of it, cool. I have to remember, like, why did I even start this? You know, I just followed my heart. It was something that I found interesting and, and a lot of people find it interesting, too, to have these conversations. So, you know, and and just. It sounds so simple, but it's so hard to do. <laughs> it is. It is. It's so hard because I, I understand fully. Like just you know, your thought about, and then people's other people's thoughts about. No one, no one cares about native food. Pretty much, you know, like yeah, basically they were
1: like, well, maybe you like, built you know, you but need we to have, have a backup plan or yeah. like a a, a a fail safe. And it's mm-hmm. like no, we like it's not doing the work. It's mm-hmm. not doing. It's not making any progress if I have like a menu of a bunch of European foods and then be like, and also I can do native food if you want, but you can order stuff that you know, you know, that you're comfortable with Mm -hmm. if that's what you want. No, it needs to be like, try something, learn about something, learn about the people whose land you're on. Like (laughs) this is important. It's important, Mm -hmm. you know, and that idea that, you know, people wouldn't, want to eat our food wouldn't order it that you know there wouldn't be a demand for that or a clientele for that that's an idea that was it's like this underlying systemic racism that's just like bubbling underneath that you don't even realize is there until it's like right there yeah but it's like those are ideas that were put in place to to keep us down telling us that like our ancestors weren't genius scientists that developed all of these different crops that the, that all of the modern world now relies on, you know, like you're trying to tell me that the people that, that domesticated the crop of corn and then worked out the, the chemical reaction to niche to the corn to unlock the niacin within it, so that our bodies can absorb the nutrients and 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 digest it. Like those scientists are ignorant savages that didn't know how to manage their land and needed like to be corralled and given, you know, government subsidies for food. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's ridiculous. And those are just all ideas that were put. On to us to make us think that we're not you know that our culture is not valuable, yeah, and we know that that's not true. And it's just you know we're in a great time right now where people you know outside of our own communities are finally discovering that,
0: yeah, there's so much thriving going on mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and I mean would not I mean with everything you know it's it's food it's acting it's art it's fashion it's media there's so many like thriving things going on with every indigenous community and i i I don't know you know it's uh it's a it's a crazy great time to be alive right now (laughs) you know because growing up i talk about this too it's like i didn't have anybody to really I mean, like, you know, you got your elders and stuff, but you don't really understand as a, as a kid, like what that means. And for me, it was like watching TV a lot and I didn't see a lot of representation on, on TV. Cause that was our only form of like, you know, an escape, I guess, you know, like growing up, you know, you could grow up and you could be an actor. Well, I don't see myself on there. So is that even possible? You know, and and
1: we had so few. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's why, like, there's, you know, like, like growing up, you know, I had, I had, like, everything Pocahontas. mm -hmm. I loved the Disney movie Pocahontas because I was like, she's native, Mm -hmm. you know? The Disney's (laughs) representation of that story is so bad and, like, just incredibly problematic, um, racist in so many ways, just, Really not very well done. Did Mm. not hold up (laughs) over time. But at the time, like, that is what I had to look up to. It was literally the only one. Like, you know, you just took what you could get. And it usually wasn't very good representations.
0: Yeah. Tell me about it. I mean, before that, it was horrible misrepresentation of natives in these cartoons.
1: Oh, God. Yeah.
0: And I mean, but that was what I seen, too. And I was like. I guess that's me, you know, like <laughs> right. like you're a kid, so you don't really understand like how racist that is and how horrible that is. I mean now, you know, on Disney Plus they won't even show it. Yeah. And or there's like a what, um a caution thing before it or something like these on our views, this is back <laughs> then right. or whatever, you know, like <laughs> this is
1: it was a different time. Yeah, it was a different time. <laughs> it's a different time. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But, and then you fast forward, like, I think about that stuff, like, from growing up, and then you fast forward to now, and I mean, there's so much that has changed, you know, within that, you know, and, and it's, and it's so cool to hear about indigenous food, you know, Um, we were talking earlier, you know, about um, just different types of, I guess, like, ways to make these foods, you know, we didn't really get into it, but, you know, I wanted to kind of get into it, but. What kind of like research did you do to because did you already know a lot before or did you have to was it half and half or did you have to really look into it?
1: Well, I didn't grow up um, you know, eating any kind of traditional foods. Mm-hmm. We didn't have any Cherokee foods, um, you know, that were passed down through that side of my family. Um, so it was when I moved to Oklahoma that I was able to you know, start eating, going to community gatherings and trying things like, um, you know, like hominy and hog fry and, um, you know, the wild onions and eggs and grape dumplings and stuff like that. Um, and so that's where I started was those foods. And then, um, I just started getting into the research of it and I've always been, Uh, kind of a research nerd like I love to just go down a rabbit hole and (laughs) and find out every little thing about something that I'm interested in and so it kind of went from there because I was like well you know I've learned to make the foods that I see at these gatherings all the time. But like, you know, it was right when, you know, when I was really getting into this was kind of the beginning of the food sovereignty movement. And so any of the, you know, research I was doing where I was like, Oh, I want to find a recipe for how to make, you know, make hominy using, you know, field corn and, and wood ash, like the old traditional way, you know, I'm, so I would be looking up how to do that. And all of these other ideas started coming in, like the idea, you know, that our, our ancestors ate so much differently than we do today. And that there are these different eras of indigenous food that follow our history, where you have pre-contact foods, that are, you know, the healthy foods that are very regional, specific to the people, you know, and it's all about their connection to the land that they have a relationship with, and it's very seasonal, and all of the foods, you know, that food is medicine, and that food comes to you at just the time of the year that you need it, and, you know, all of those different concepts and that, you know, through the history of colonization and removal and, you know, all of these different eras that we go through in our history, the food changed along with it. And so that's where, like, you know, that deeper understanding of indigenous food started to come in where I was like, okay, well, like, let's look at the differences between our ancestral foods and then these newer traditional foods that we eat, like, you know, grape dumplings and fry bread that were, and and even hog fry that we consider traditional foods now are not truly, they're not ancestral foods. Mm-hmm. They're traditional because they are foods that our ancestors, you know, came up with out of necessity and they're survival foods and um, they've become a beloved part of our, you know, of our food culture but there's a context that goes with all of that that is really important to understand and so yeah i mean it's just there's just this whole way of understanding what happened to indigenous people you know through colonization if you look at it through the lens of food and how that's affected our health and and well-being as Native people, you know, there's so many um, health disparities between Native communities and mainstream America, and that's because of access to healthy food. And Indigenous people are are a group that is, you know, are pretty, you know, it's it's kind of a special circumstance that Indigenous people are in because of removal. There aren't any, you know, there aren't a lot of other groups that were removed. Deliberately from the land that that they had been on for 12,000 years, the diet that their bodies were attuned to, and then plunked down in the middle of nowhere and given a box with flour and lard and sugar. Things that their bodies had never come in contact with before for generations and generations. And so within a short amount of time, it completely changed the the health outlook of our people, you know, all of a sudden we went from being like extremely strong and healthy and, um, you know, long lived people to, you know, dying young, suffering Mm -hmm. from all of these different, you know, horrible illnesses and it all has to do with diet and it all goes back to colonization and removal. Mm hmm. So understanding that is a huge part of understanding indigenous identity. You can understand all of that through the way that our food has changed. And then once you understand what happened and how we got to where we are now, that's how you figure out how to heal is how do we get back to the foods that we ate when we were healthy and strong and when we did have a connection to the land that made us strong in ways other than just, you know, physically, because there's a cultural connection to the land that that is missing as well. That has been detrimental to our culture and to our communities.
0: Yeah. What was pre-contact food like?
1: So, you know, it, uh, the main thing that, um, that you can say applies to all indigenous people all <laughs> over Turtle Island and, and the world in general. Is that it was very regionally specific and seasonal Mm -hmm. and then because of that it it just changes depending on who you're talking about so Mm -hmm. for Cherokee people were southeastern tribe and um our ancestral homelands were the Appalachian region so it was mountains and rivers and so um we did farm things like corn beans and squash those were like staple crops and then that was supplemented by different animals that could be hunted in that region like elk and um, venison, deer, um, you know, then there was a lot of, um, you know, turkey and different type of waterfowl that you could find in, in, the, in that region and then lots of fishing and, um, and then all of the plants that you could gather in that area that were all available at different seasons. And so that, you know, is specific to the Cherokee people, those plants they have a relationship with and have for generations that go back. Like there are stories with those plants, there are names for those plants, and there's a relationship there. There's a relationship with the animals that they share space with and the the rivers that run through the exact place that is the place of the Cherokee people. And that, you know, think about that. And then think of the entire rest of the country there are communities that cover every every square foot of north america and they all have a specific and very close relationship with the land that they called home Hmm. and it's different in the southwest it's different in the pacific northwest it's different in the great lakes region you know i've gotten to spend some time with um some people up north in the Great Lakes region, some Anishinaabe people and Ojibwe's and um, they have this relationship with the wild rice where wild rice was, um, was something that was prophesied to them. They had stories that they would come from the east and they would move to the west and they would stop when they got to the land where the food grows on the water. And when they got to the Great Lakes region and found wild rice, the food that grows on the water, they knew that they had found their home and that their job and part of their identity as people of that land was to take care of that sacred plant, monomen, the wild rice. Mm -hmm. And so that's a relationship that they have that's very specific to place. You know, that's something that doesn't exist. In store-bought food, like you, Mm -hmm. you can't have that kind of context and relationship with food that's been processed. Yeah, so, so that's what pre-contact food was all about. It was like wherever you are at, what can you find there? How can you live in relation to the plants and animals that you share that space with in a way that, like, you're caring for them, you're taking care of the land, taking care of the water, keeping things healthy and then you're receiving gifts from that land in the way of of food and sustenance
0: Mm -hmm. i forget we were like we were forced here you know it's Mm -hmm. so it's so it's just everyday thing like oklahoma you know we're all here in oklahoma these tribes that got pushed here and so i always tend to forget we don't we're not from here you know right we were and oklahoma here. is
1: so different in that like mm-hmm. and it's crazy like i'm i'm really f- like fortunate and blessed to have been able to do some traveling and to be able to visit indigenous communities in different parts of the country mm-hmm. because it really does show you the the like the contrast of how different it is in oklahoma because this is indian territory yeah so it's like you know the 39 federally recognized tribes that have reservations here in Oklahoma and then you know countless others that that are here they came from everywhere you know it's not just southeastern tribes you know they talk about the civilized tribes like the Cherokee and and everybody else from the southeast like there's that representation but then there's people from you know from the Great Lakes and there's people from the Plains and there's people from the Southwest. There's people from as far as like the Modoc nation got removed here from the coast of California. Like think of how different that is to be taken from like your ancestral foods are like, you know, things from a, a redwood forest and coastal region with the Pacific ocean. And those are the ways that you've had for you know since the beginning of time basically mm-hmm. and then you get loaded on a train and dropped into the into the middle of northeastern oklahoma where you know like it's rocky soil nothing that you are familiar with will grow here mm-hmm. and you're starving cuz you don't you can't provide for yourself in that situation and then all of these different tribes like you know are just right on top of each other here in in oklahoma and it's it's wild to think about yeah. like the mashup of cultures that there are in our little state here now. And, and the mashup of different cuisines that that brings together too. Cause it's like all these different people brought all of these different ideas about food and, um, and they all just kind of mix here in Oklahoma mm-hmm. as far as native food goes.
0: It's wild. It is wild to think. Cause <laughs> when you're talking about that, you, you're you from the Cherokees Southeast and, I had to remember, I was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, because Pawnee, we're from Nebraska. Pawnees, right. you know, like, we walked here from there, and we were around that area up north, and, and, uh, I, I don't know, it's just, I overlooked that sometimes, you know, when mm-hmm. we're talking about old days, you know, yeah. because we were not based here, like, and I was going to say, too, like, you know, being brought here, I assumed there was nothing here when we got here, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't. I, I don't know what Oklahoma looked like back then, but I'm assuming it was just a place to put us to, uh, a yeah,
1: corral us somewhere. There were already indigenous people living here and that this was their ancestral homeland. Mm-hmm. And then all these other tribes came in on top of them, you know? Yeah. And then like, you know, my husband's, uh, Ponca Oto and Iowa. So he's from up North in the Omaha region mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. their, their ancestors. And, um, so people always like, you know, they they actually did hunt bison traditionally and, and, you know, had that relationship with bison and everything. Mm-hmm. And then like, you know, people will ask me about like, what's Cherokee food? Like, you know, people think of bison as, you know, a Native American food. Well, we yeah. didn't have we didn't have bison in the Appalachian mountains. Like <laughs> we True. were eating that, you know, like we were eating different things, but that's something that people also don't understand about indigenous food is the variety yeah. and like how diverse it is from region to region, you know? So there's so much to be talked about and to be, um, to be shared with people. And, uh, it's just really interesting that there's this really beautiful vibrant delicious and diverse um you know genre of cuisine if you want to call it that like you know indigenous food and then people just really have no understanding of it whatsoever. <laughs> For real? like they don't even know and i'm like this is the it's the food from here
0: mm-hmm.
1: and everybody knows about italian food everybody knows about french food English food, you know, you could, everybody could list at least five dishes from all of these different foods, mm-hmm. but I guarantee you like 99% of America couldn't name five Native American foods. True. And honestly, that, that kind of goes for our own people too. You know, like not all, I, I didn't grow up knowing anything about Native American food. I had to be, you know, the like researcher to really dive in and get into it. Um, and that's, what's exciting about this time right now is that, it's coming to the forefront and more people are interested and are learning about what it's, what it's all about. And, and that will become a thing of the past. You know, people will start to understand what native food is all about.
0: Yeah. I mean, and this brings a lot of attention to it too, you know, because same thing, you know, I think of indigenous foods. I don't really know, you know, Mm -hmm. like what that is. And I was in that same thing, like, Oh, it's Buffalo meat. Right. You know, it's like probably elk, I guess. But then, yeah, you have to think of different where they're based out of, I guess, you know, and then really, really dive into that, I guess, rabbit hole you spoke about (laughs) earlier because it goes so deep. It goes so far than just your average cow. Right. You know, your average beef. You know, there's so many things that factor into it. You talk about processed foods too, like, you know. I got to do better on that, you know? And I, I was for a little bit, but I mean this stuff, man, it's like so addicting though, you know?
1: And that's by design. Yeah. It really is. I'm actually, I'm reading this book, um, called the Dorito effect Mm -hmm. and I haven't got that far in it. I'm too busy to like sit down and read books. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I wasn't. I need some time (laughs) off to like read the stack of books that I have by my bed. But, um, I just it was recommended to me by um, a woman named Linda Black Elk, who is an incredible ethnobotanist, and she works in food sovereignty and um, and health and wellness through ancestral foods. And she mentioned this book to me. And the Dorito effect, like the short version of that, is that basically they in the processed foods industry they developed a way to create, like, flavorings that give you the flavor of eating a taco, you know, because that's what a Dorito is, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's a taco-flavored chip. Yeah. So it's like you th- your brain doesn't understand because we haven't evolved yet to catch up with this. So your brain doesn't know the difference between, you know, You're eating something that tastes like you're eating lettuce and tomatoes and cheese and, you know, all of these other things and that your body should be receiving the actual nutrients that are tied with those things from the flavorings. But the actual food itself doesn't have any of that in there. So your body's saying, oh, keep eating, keep eating, keep eating those because you haven't reached, you haven't gotten the nutrients yet you know, it tastes like tomatoes, so I should be getting vitamin C right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to just keep eating until, so that's what makes these foods addictive. Like there's actual, you know, chemistry to it with these with these processed foods. And of course, just the high sugar and fat content, like just evolution wise, we're designed to look for foods that, that uh, have, you know, high sugar and carbohydrate content because that's, you know, back when, calories were hard to come by, you needed a lot of them and you needed those things to survive and keep your, you know, your energy levels up. But nowadays we don't need all of that. And it, the refined nature of those processed foods, it leaves all of the calories and the, you know, the bad stuff in and and takes any of the nutrient level of it out, you know? Mm -hmm. So.
0: Yeah. When you think about it too, like back then you were always on the move, Mm -hmm. you know, and you were always... You weren't just I mean, sure, you probably had some downtime or whatever, but you were always out and about looking for your next meal, your next water. I don't know. You're you're always moving, constantly moving and you need those calories and everything. And so and yeah, to think now, like what people work out a couple hours a day. Come home, chill, or whatever. Catch up. Yeah.
1: (laughs) But (laughs) But, it's not the same as the way our ancestors lived.
0: You'd wake up and then you'd be off, be out. You Mm -hmm. know, you'd be out all day or whatever. And then if you got caught in the dark, then I'm I'm, I'm assuming you would camp there, I guess. You'd find (laughs) a way to create a fire and then you'd have whatever you found throughout the day. I mean, Mm -hmm. and so I was going to ask too, were we high? Do you think, hold on. I you say this like I don't know I don't want to sound too crazy but I'm just speaking about now with the stuff I know like high protein high fats carbs were they like did I know they probably didn't like you know like we, we didn't do have now.
1: like you know the the processed carbohydrates that we have now mm-hmm. you know. it's not like there were loaves of like white bread or these big, huge starchy potatoes that those like, that's not what potatoes originally were that, you know, all of these foods have been cultivated and,
0: um, modified, modified. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: To be, you know, to grow bigger, grow faster, grow more, but there's a finite amount of actual, you know, um nutrient content so you're getting you know lots and lots of starches but and you're not actually getting any of the the vitamins and minerals and and amino acids and all those things that your body needs. Mm-hmm. Um, so like an ancestral diet um, there a lot of the you know one of the big differences is, the amount, and this does, I'll, I'll say this, this, um, this varies regionally, you mm-hmm. know, because yeah. there are, yeah. you know, um, there are Inuit communities. I know that like their, their ancestral foods and their traditional foods, like they were very high in fat and, and, um, and animal protein and then not a lot of vegetables. Cause that's what, you know not a lot of vegetation cause that's what was available there and, and that's what they adapted to. Mm-hmm. But like for the majority of like, you know, North America, you, our ancestors ate a lot more vegetarian than you would think, you know, like it was a lot more plant-based and meat was something more like a seasoning. A lot of times the meat was preserved. Like it's not like the way that we think of, uh, a dinner plate now, where it's like half of it is a big pork chop or a big piece of steak, mm-hmm. and then you got your two sides. You know, you got something starchy, and you got like your vegetable because you got to. Yeah, you know. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and that's how people think of a plate now. But yeah. really, what you what the way that our ancestors would be eating would be like a big stew. There would be, you know, corn and or beans because those give you your like complete nutrition where you get your protein from the beans and you're getting, you know, lots of amino acids and things like that from the corn. And then you're supplementing that with different seasonal vegetation that you can find that have, you know, different vitamins and minerals. And then you're adding a little bit of meat or something to add that fat and add flavor Mm. to the food. But, you know, when you think about the way that our communities ate, you know, they're harvesting an elk or a bison and then distributing the, that among the community and a lot of it is preserved by drying it or something like that for, you know, the winter times. Not a lot of it was necessarily eaten fresh, you know, like cooked like a steak, mm-hmm. you know. A, a lot of it was preserved and then, you know, added into stews in dried form as a flavoring. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. which is uh making me really hungry right now. <laughs> me too. <laughs> I'm just Talking about like, food. Dang, <laughs> venison stew. <laughs> like corn soup. But uh <laughs> But that's yeah. It's just a different way to think about meat, you know. Like yeah. we—that's such an American thing. Like have your steak and your potatoes, and mm-hmm. like the, you know, like yeah. that's the cattle industry wanting to take over the whole country, which they did. And like all the land is now grazing land, mm-hmm. and all the corn we grow is to feed the cows, you know, so that we can have these cheap steaks. But that's not the way our ancestors ate. Like if if they did have a cow, it would be you know, it would be. more of a flavoring, you know, meat was a seasoning and it wasn't the main event, you know? So a lot of, and, um, something I've just kind of been learning more about, um, as far as indigenous food goes and putting like actual data to it is that the, the diet that our ancestors had was so much more diverse than, um, than our diet is today. Like I think, um, the Dr. Melissa Lewis, she's Cherokee, and um, she is at a Tahlequah and does a lot of research into um, and into ancestral foods. And she says, like, there's probably about 30, like for the average American person, 30 different foods that you eat. Like if you really broke it down to how many different, you know, meats and vegetables you have to choose from and starches or whatever, maybe 30 different foods. Our ancestors ate something more like 300 different types of food. So think like you know, it wasn't just like you know, our ancestors didn't go to the store and say like, okay, do I want beef, pork, or chicken tonight? Mm -hmm. You know, it there was every animal in the kingdom. You know, like our ancestors were out there eating snakes and raccoons and Mm -hmm. squirrels and um, and all of those different protein sources have all these different nutrients. The variety is like one of the biggest differences between the way that they and the way we eat today which is that you know all of the produce and stuff all of the things that they foraged were all very seasonal and there was a huge variety of different things like all these plants in the forest so many of them are are edible and the different nutrients that come from them are just a wide variety and then nowadays you go to the store and it's like even if you're buying like the organic you know expensive produce, you're still like that produce has been, you know, even if you're buying non-GMO, it's still been manipulated by the commercial farming process to where it doesn't have the nutritional density and you're not eating, you know, when you go to the store, there's like one kind of butternut squash. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Our people have like thousands of different varieties of pumpkin, and they all have different little, you know, little differences in nutrition that they give us. Mm-hmm. So just having that variety is a difference.
0: True, yeah. true. You go we, to the
1: store and you really only have a couple different options <laughs> yeah. even in the produce section. So it's like that's part of um, you know, the work that has to happen is that um we need to diversify our diets.
0: Yeah, we have a giant variety of corn yeah Uh, ponies do so i I, uh, never even thought of that like you you breaking it down and everything it's like just like whoa you know it's (laughs) it's so it's oh it's mind-blowing to just kind of sit here and listen and just think about all this stuff Mm -hmm. you know it's interesting to hear all this and um i I asked that about the i guess what i said like fats and proteins but Mm -hmm. i have to remember too like like with learning language like you got to forget english you know, like we I, I help with our language class and you have to forget English. You know, you have to just not think like R has a different sound to it than Ruh. You know, ours is like a ours is like a duh sound. It's like a D sound. So uh with food, you know, I can't think of like the whole like well, how I, how many calories do you think had, you know. <laughs> like you <laughs> right. know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> But you know, I asked that because like um growing up for me like food was like you know i did football and stuff and back then they told you carb load carb load carb load carb load load, bread spaghetti pancakes carb load up workout and
1: to bulk up
0: to bulk up and then like but as i got older there was so many different things coming about too like carb loading is bad don't do that and then when i started doing mma and stuff um my coach turned me on to paleo
1: mm.
0: i didn't know if that was i never heard of it and he he uh told me to read this book it's called a uh, dang. i forgot the name but i think the guy who wrote it is rob wolf basically just describes like what it is and what you need to i guess sustain that type of life paleo life mm. and so you know that kind of made me think too like i wasn't i was becoming an adult i was still young but i was still like I had a lot of questions about stuff. And so I was like, I'd be really cool if like there was an ancestral type of, you know, book like this, you know, like, because I mean, this is paleo, like paleolithic man or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it it's telling you like nuts, fruits, mm-hmm. but not too many fruits because it's a lot of sugar, you know? Right. And, and then like meats, like fish. Uh, I don't think they had pork in there, but it was like all grass fed stuff, you know? And, and but you know reading that i was like man i was like i'd rather read like an ancestral type of food <laughs> book you know to yeah. make me understand better of what we had too you know but and then it went from paleo i couldn't get into paleo it was too expensive and i just couldn't do it but and then it moved to um the whole keto thing mm. and that for me that was like a high fat type of way of living and people just didn't understand that, and so that's where I get the whole like protein and high fats. And if if like maybe we went, want like a fat way, I guess to help burn those calories for now for that moment, and then later, you know, because like um, when I did it, I wasn't on my feet all the time, but <laughs> but I mean it, it made me feel really good. You know, I I I did get the grass fed meat um veggies it was like broccoli and like oh like cabbage and brussel sprouts and stuff it was it was a lot of greens and it was a lot of grass fed meat and it was bacon and then some sausage um and then the free range eggs uh for cheese it was like goat goat cheese or whatever and then like water constant water and then i would eat the uh avocados a bunch of avocado avocados with every meal and grass-fed butter Now I don't know like if that makes any difference because you know the food industry is so out of whack <laughs> but you know like it I stopped drinking sodas and I was drinking water and then I wasn't really working out I was just kind of sustaining this like type of way of eating and so with me I lost a lot of weight I lost so much weight and it it got me to a point where I was fasting a lot and I didn't, I wasn't like trying to fast. I just wasn't hungry, you know? And then the people I was working with, they're like, are you okay? <laughs> like, that's not normal because you need to eat. Your body needs to eat. And I was like, I don't know. I don't I don't know too much about the body, but, you know, I know my body. I know when it's hungry. I know when it's like, Russell, you need to eat. You're going to pass out. <laughs> and I wasn't doing that. And I was yeah. like on my third day of fasting, 72 hours, because I pushed it. I was like... The first day I was like, I'm not hungry, so I'm not going to eat. I just drank a bunch of water. Second day I woke up and I was was fine. I woke up and I was walking around doing stuff. And then I was like, "Eh, let's see how far I can go today. And then I went the entire day, went to bed. I woke up the next day and I had to go to work. And I went to work and I felt fine. My head felt clear. I didn't feel like depressed or anything. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't feel bloaty. I went to work, I did my job, and I was like, I felt really good. And then I told people that, and then they just kinda like brought me down because they were like, you need to eat. Like, you <laughs> right. need you need sugar, you need this and that. Just all this stuff that's programmed in you. Right. And then I was like, no, I was like, I think I'm good. And then I think that kinda got to me that day. And then when I went home, that did, like, when dinner was coming around, I was like, I guess I'll eat. You know, because like your peers kind of have like a certain way to get to you. And I was like, I was like, maybe, maybe I should eat. Maybe, maybe this is, you know, hurting my body and I'm not even realizing it. So I ate that night. I didn't eat a lot, but, you know, I was like, I was kind of wanting to push it like to four to five days, but I just didn't. And that was the longest time I fasted. And so, and I know like back then too i'm sure they fasted as well yeah, i'm sure they definitely. fasted i'm sure they there's some times where they probably didn't even find anything to eat maybe you mm-hmm. know hunting and stuff but you know i don't know there's so much stuff out there i don't know if you watch a dual survival Have you ever watch that uh which one is it dual survival Uh uh-uh. there's this guy his name's cody something but he walks around barefoot all the time <laughs> Because, uh, I mean, this goes back from before TikTok. Like, now TikTok's like, you know, if you walk around barefoot, you're more connected to the earth and everything. Yeah, grounding. But but this guy's, like, been doing that, and he has, like, this man-made hut that he lives out in the middle of nowhere, and he lives off the land. Yeah. He's on this show, and it's interesting. I mean, they make their kills, and they're just, it's called dual survival because they're dropped off somewhere, and then it's him and this other guy, and they don't, agree on a lot of stuff. And so they're always like butting heads and everything and I don't know, it's like interesting to like think about that and then like the way we were living back then and just like I mean, that's the only way you could probably see it now. I mean, I can't go back in time in a time machine. <laughs> I just have to watch this guy. <laughs> right. And then just kind of I guess pretend he's native. No. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no.
1: That's what we need is like a <laughs> yeah, like a a native survivalist show.
0: That would be amazing. I would watch that. <laughs> that should be you. Yeah,
1: no. I don't know enough for that. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> but there are plenty of people that do. That's <laughs> true. There's some people, uh some folks out, uh uh down southern Oklahoma with the Choctaws that mm-hmm. that like have kind of a homestead and do that like where they make everything in like the old way, really? ancestral way. Like they do the old pottery and um, hide tanning and, um, you know, foraging and all that kind of stuff. It's really Whoa. cool. Yeah. Like basically like they want to live fully immersive experience of how our ancestors lived. So that's, yeah, I haven't got to spend much, spend much time down there, but I, am wanting to go and check out what they've got going on. Cause it's really interesting yeah. how they're, you know, there's so many people all over the place that are, um, that are working on, you know, just preserving these techniques and this knowledge and all these ways that, you know, it will come back around it's already starting to come back around. Like people are seeing that, you know, this like modern society that we've built where we have all these like things that are supposed to be conveniences, Mm -hmm. you know, like that we're supposed to be revolutionizing our lives and making everything so much better. And now we're realizing actually have been like slowly killing us and, you know, processed foods and, and um, you know, all of these convenience things that are really just junking up our bodies when, All we ever needed was to live in a simple way, you Mm -hmm. know, and in a connected way, you know. So it's coming back around to that.
0: It is. Yeah. People are realizing, I mean, there's cancer in these foods, you know, like it's it's so crazy to think like just the things that you're like willfully ingesting in Mm -hmm. your body
1: and i think that's why you had a good experience when you were doing the the diet that you were talking about mm-hmm. where you were fasting and then you were being very intentional uh, intentional you were being very intentional mm-hmm. about the foods that you were eating right like you were preparing your meals yourself yeah. and you knew all the ingredients that were in there mm-hmm. you weren't using you know it, you were eating simple foods whole foods that's mm-hmm. like that's you know that's the true evolution of all these like fad kind of diets that people are trying, like the whole paleo thing and keto and whatever South beach diet. I don't know, whatever. There's a million of them, Mm -hmm. but all you really have to do is just eat foods that are as close to their natural state as possible. Like just don't do anything. And that's, kind of crazy to think of like a chef saying that like don't do anything to your food <laughs> but like really I mean the the better your food is like the better quality ingredients you use you know if you have really great tomatoes that were grown in somebody's garden right at the peak of summertime you know you don't have to add a bunch of stuff to that you don't need all of these weird powdered flavorings and all that crap that junks up in your body um, preservatives and all of those things, because the food itself is is perfect. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even need anything. Yeah. You know, when you make like, I have made hominy from some of the Pawnee Seed Preservation, uh, the Pawnee Seed. I think they changed it to Society now. Pawnee mm. Seed Preservation Society. But um, I, I get corn from 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 them all the time from mm-hmm. Deb Echohawk. And I love cooking that corn because, like, you don't even have to hardly season it. Like, I'll make grits with that blue corn, and I'll just put, like, a tiny little sprinkle of salt and a little bit of, like, my wood ash to soften it. Mm-hmm. And it just tastes really toasty and earthy and sweet. And you don't you don't have to add a bunch of stuff to it to make it good. And that's the whole point. Like, that's why I think you feel so good when you eat that way is that it's clean and it's um, – you're actually getting the nutrients and not just getting a bunch of filler. Yeah. That's just there to, you know, to make up for the fact that there's no <laughs> nutritional value to it. You know, that's what all those boxed foods really are. It's like it's just a bunch of salt and sugar trying to make something bad taste good. Yeah. You know, and and trick you into to craving it when really like the foods that that actually satisfy you and make you feel good and make it so that you don't feel like you have to eat every 5 seconds those are those whole foods that that are you know as close to the way that they came out of the ground as you can get
0: Mm -hmm. yeah I mean but I I tell you like when it was time to eat you know when I (laughs) when I did feel hungry it felt so good like it was like a reward when you when I would I mean I would it's not like I was eating like grass-fed steaks and stuff I was mainly eating a lot of grass-fed beef so Mm -hmm. I would make patties all the time and I, yeah, you know, I would splurge on some steaks every now and again, but shit, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go out and spend like 30 bucks for, <laughs> right. you know, like not even a pound of meat, but yeah. you know, and I could, at Sprouts, they used to have, um, grass-fed meat that was, um, or grass-fed beef that was about $2 a pound. Dang. They used to do that. I don't know about now, but, but it would be $2 a pound and shoot, you know, we'd go and buy... I'd probably buy like 15 pounds of meat and I just put it in a freezer and I'd <laughs> put some in the fridge and, and I'd, I'd even meal prep sometimes. But then, you know, like it got to the point where, yeah, like I wasn't hungry. So I just wouldn't even meal prep. And then,
1: yeah. Cause your body's actually getting nutrients <laughs> and my
0: and my body was being patient enough when it was hungry that I would be able to cook, Yeah, you know, it was being patient enough to where it wasn't like. You know, like sometimes when you're really hungry and you have to cook, you're just sitting there like shaking and you're trying to cook. Because right.
1: yeah. Or or you get to the point where you're like, Man, I've been so busy all day and I'm I'm so hungry. I just gotta get something. Yeah. And then you end up eating some crap. Yep. And we do it all the time in mm-hmm. my family, like way more than I even want to admit. <laughs> or, you yep. know, it's like I hate it. Me too. But you just get to that point. It's like, man, we're all hungry. I'm exhausted. I don't have time to like make four hour bison stew or something or even, even like put together something simple and just order pizza. Mm -hmm. And every single time we do it, we'll eat and then feel terrible Yeah, and you instantly regret it. And it's like, man, why did I do that? (laughs) It's just, you know, we're all learning. Mm -hmm. We're having to relearn all this stuff Yeah, and, you make mistakes and stuff but when when we do eat the right way and when we we eat those foods that we have cultural connection with and that you know that are good for our bodies then you just you can feel the difference and the preparation of it too is like that's something that I talk about a lot when I do like workshops or I like you know lecture like talk about indigenous food in in any way is that there's also like a form of ceremony that goes into the preparation of it like there's intention put into when you make that food Mm. that just doesn't really like you can't really vibe with a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese the (laughs) way that you do when you're making something special Mm -hmm. and that's why those foods like you know uh It tastes so much better and feel so much better to eat when you know that like that intention and, you know, love went into the cooking of it, you know, that you can taste that and you can feel it in your body. And so imagine if like every meal was like that, Mm -hmm. the way that our ancestors ate, you know, like when they prepared meals, they, they put their souls into that every single time.
0: The love, the everything into that food. Yeah. Man, it's crazy. I would, man. That'd be that'd be amazing to just have a meal from back then. Yeah, oh, you know? man.
1: I I would love that. That would be my first thing. <laughs> if like if there really was like a a time machine or something, where do you want to go back to? Like some great moment in history? I'd be like, no, just like dinner on yeah. a Tuesday. That'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> like just regular ass dinner. That's all I want. Like catch some fish, bring it back to camp, cook it up. That's what I want. <laughs> I don't need to see like any great moments in history. I just want like a good dinner.
0: <laughs> yeah, we were shoved that <laughs> the history, the good moments in history. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd rather go back with my ancestors. <laughs> yeah,
1: no kidding. That's what I want.
0: <laughs> um, I was gonna bring up too. You were just on Chef versus Wild. Yeah. Yeah. Yep.
1: That was that was an experience. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you. <laughs> Um, it was a. Uh, so it's this, it's a new show on Hulu. And the concept is um, that each episode there are two chefs who are paired with survival partners. And. Uh, each chef is dropped off in the wilderness, out somewhere. I think pretty much everything was in the um, in British Columbia, like off the coast of British Columbia. Mm-hmm. So for, for my episode specifically, we were dropped on a little island off the coast of British Columbia called Hardy Island. And um, we didn't know where we were at the time. Like we had no idea. You don't, you know, we were dropped off and you don't have anything. There's no matches. You don't have a tent. You don't have um, water, food, nothing. You're just left there and you need to survive off the land for five days. And, um, while you're out there, you, you know, you forage and fish for whatever you can find to sustain yourself. And then also be gathering items to create a three course meal at the end, um, at the challenge at the end. And so each chef is out in their, you know, different territories, kind of like alone, but with a little bit of like chopped Mm -hmm. (laughs) mixed in to where, um, you know, you're out there in your territory and, you know, people get dropped in different areas. So maybe one chef's area has like all these really cool mushrooms, but the other chef has like these really great herbs available. You know, you, you find different things because you're in different terrain and then you gather all this stuff. And at the end of the five days, you meet up in this wilderness kitchen. And this kitchen was like on the e- literally on the edge of a cliff overlooking the ocean. And it was all these beautiful wood fire, like it was all there was no electricity or anything like that. So it was all, um, you know, mortar and pestle type tools. Um, and we had to cook everything over a wood fire. And so you had to be able to. You know, have the skills to to manipulate the fire and cook the way you needed to for all these different dishes that you were doing. And then you, you know, make an appetizer entree and dessert and get judged based on, you know, who, which chef kind of was able to do the most with the ingredients they were able to forage hmm. on this adventure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that was that was wild to be dropped off. And, you know, i forage here. Um, you know, I like dig wild onions in the springtime and I like pick up pecans and hickory nuts. (laughs) You know, I don't go out in the woods and like just stay there and survive. (laughs) That's not my normal thing. Um, especially not for five days so that it was crazy. Um, so, but then of course, you know, it's reality TV. So they take this epic five day, adventure challenge that we went on Mm -hmm. and then they cram it into 40 minutes (laughs) on the show. So it's like, you don't really, I feel like you didn't really get the entire scope of what we went through, um, you know, as part of the show. Mm -hmm. But as far as like personal experience, I mean, I'll never forget that. I, um, I was really lucky to have an opportunity to like challenge myself that way and see, you know, what I could really find out there. Cause that was a big part of it was that, you know, I here in Oklahoma, it's a very, very different climate and terrain than up there. Mm -hmm. Up there it's, it's a, it's a full on rainforest. So everything is just constantly completely soaking wet, Mm -hmm. everything. Um, so you're constantly trying to stay dry, trying to stay warm. Um, you know, we didn't we didn't have matches how do you make a fire with a flint you know spark when everything is wet you know so it was great to have my survival partner greg who was able to like find some you know we were gathering all these little bits of you know kind of mossy stuff that we could find and putting it in our pockets to try and dry it out as we were you know hiking and then hopefully be able to you know catch it with the flint once we got back to camp mm-hmm. so it was a lot. <laughs> Dang. It was a lot.
0: Should I have had Cody with you from Dual Survival. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs>
1: we did all right, you know. Like I yeah, found you some really good. cool stuff. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. I um, yeah. I I really wish that they would have showed a little bit more of the things that I foraged because they did show. You know, they showed this really big, amazing cauliflower mushroom that yeah. my partner Greg found. Mm-hmm. Um, they found, um, they showed, um, us harvesting huckleberries. That's the last berry that, um, that hangs out up there. We were there at the end of, it was like, when was it? It was like the last week in October and first week in November that we were out there. So berry season is over and all that's left are these little huckleberries that are like the size of a, of a peppercorn, Mm -hmm. but it tastes like a blueberry. And so those were amazing, but you have to gather a lot of those to get a mouthful. Um, and we had oysters. We found uh, plenty of oysters. And so we were kind of subsisting on oysters, huckleberries, that mushroom that we found. And then, you know, we didn't have water, so we had to go and gather water. And the only source of fresh water we had was this swamp. And so we had to, like, fill up our pot with this swamp water and then, like, boil it to- boil it to you know get rid of any weird (laughs) swamp critters that would have been in it and you can imagine it didn't taste very good so i would like we you know strained it out and then i made cedar and spruce tea out of the you know just to kind of give it a little bit better flavor and cover up some of the swampiness um So that was fun. (laughs) And again, like, man, (laughs) they only had 40 minutes. And I'm like, y'all didn't show my swamp tea. You didn't show, like, I made this red alder, um... I made a red alder syrup, I used honey, and then I harvested the bark from a red alder tree, which is really cool. Like they, we don't have them around here, I don't think, but up there, um, you know, I was able to do a bunch of research, you know, Mm -hmm. we had like six days of quarantine just for COVID protocol on the production Mm -hmm. where we were trapped in a hotel room by ourselves. Like they left meals outside our door type of quarantine you're not allowed out of your room and yeah that that was harder than the wilderness challenge Mm. staying in a hotel room for six (laughs) days I was like get me out of (laughs) here and you're in like this beautiful place and you're not allowed to go hang out you have to like stay in this crappy little room that was tough that was surviving (laughs) but it gave me a lot of time to research so I looked Mm -hmm. up like I was learning all these different plants and just trying to like basically do a crash course I bought all these like you know, wilderness field guides for like what mushrooms I could find, what different plants would be out there to try and, you know, kind of just study and brush up on what I could find. And um, so I was able to find uh, this red alder and you you cut the bark off of it and and then it's like the tree bleeds. The bark is so red inside, like it looks like it's bleeding, Mm -hmm. which again spectacular film footage. Why would that not be on the show? <laughs> like That would be so cool. I had to like climb up on this rotting log and I'm like balancing up there with like I had a really badass survival knife,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, looking like Rambo in the woods, like peeling this bark. <laughs> yeah. And then I made, a, I made a tea out of it and then, you know, added honey and boiled it down into a syrup. And it ended up tasting just like, almost like maple syrup. Mm. It had that like that woodsy smoky flavor, mm-hmm. um, but sweet. And so I made my dessert was a corn cake with that, with that alder syrup. And yeah, they didn't, they didn't show any of that. I was like, oh, yeah, well that was, <laughs> I want to see like the deleted scenes. <laughs> yeah. the, out, yeah, the stuff I want to see in the there. deleted scenes. Cause I'm like, man, we did some really cool stuff out there that they, you know, I mean, I don't envy the editors of that show. Cause I mean, we were talking about this earlier. Mm-hmm. You've got like anywhere between two and three camera guys on us. I forgot to tell you, we also had our own little like hand cam that we could do diary stuff or like it had, um it had night vision because mm-hmm. what they really wanted us to do was like, if anything happened during the night, they wanted us to film it, you know, okay. which all that happened during the night was like me huddled in the very bottom of a sleeping bag, like <laughs> around, I, we filled our, our water bottles with boiling water mm-hmm. so they would be warm in the sleeping bag. So, yeah, just me in the fetal position, like, waiting for the sun to come up.
0: <laughs> Golly.
1: But, so I didn't really film a lot with the little handy cam. But, yeah, like, two different teams with two to three cameras from sun up to sundown for five days. Like, that's a lot of footage to sort through mm-hmm. and condense down to a 40-minute episode. So, yeah, I don't know. That's insane. That. Isn't that crazy?
0: I wouldn't even. I thought it was just one camera, but when you told me it was three team, I was like,
1: "What? Yeah, that yeah. is
0: so crazy. That's insane. Yeah, I couldn't imagine like sitting there, like watching all your footage, and it's like, oh, I gotta watch all this <laughs> guy's footage now. <laughs>
1: right, man. I, 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 yeah, I don't know what all like how much. I don't know how much of that that they actually have to watch because you know a lot of it is just us. Walking through the woods, you know, looking around, being like, "Nope, nothing over here, let's go over there, mm-hmm. nope, nothing over here. What if we go turn around and go that way, see if there's some stuff over there? you know, <laughs> so I don't know a lot of that would be definitely pretty boring. <laughs> did they contact
0: but, you? um, or did a, you, yeah, think, they find out about them?
1: I think, uh, man, I haven't thought about that in a minute, but yeah, I think I got. Um, either like a Facebook or Instagram DM mm-hmm. <laughs> from a producer saying, hey, you know, I'm casting for this show. You know, we're wanting to highlight chefs that have outdoors skills and wood fire cooking skills, foraging skills. Are you interested? And, you know, I've gotten a couple messages like that before, And you always like, there's that immediate like skepticism, like, okay, Mm. who is messing around with me? Like, you're not legit, you know, like what crazy, (laughs) horrible, like campy, stupid show (laughs) are they going to try and get me to go on? You know, like you never know if it's going to be something that like doesn't even turn into anything, but then, and they, they won't tell you anything until you get like pretty far down in the process when finally they reveal like, and it's going to be on Hulu, and you're like oh my god <laughs> i <laughs> thought it was going to be like some random like no one was going to see it mm-hmm. and then it turns in out to be like actually a pretty big show <laughs> that's so cool so yeah but it uh, usually yeah that's how it starts is like some weird dm that <laughs> 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 you're like sketch <laughs> But you always got to call them back, you know, just hear it out, hear it out, because you never know, like, they might be actually flying you to an island off the coast of British (laughs) Columbia and, like, dropping you off. Every step of the way, I was like, they're just going to leave me here. What did I do? (laughs) Like this.
0: (laughs) What are we really doing Just waiting for the other
1: shoe to drop. (laughs) Yeah. Turned out okay, though.
0: That's good, yeah. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) Those those DMs sometimes, they can be a little, <laughs> like, they seem so real sometimes, too. It's mm-hmm. like, I've fallen for a few, but then, like, when you start getting into it, then it's like, all right, well, give us your credit card number, and then... Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, no, I'm going to block you now. Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. I lucked out on this one.
0: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's really cool, though. You didn't end up winning, Um. No. What happens if you win? Is it just bragging rights? Or is there like a show? That was the Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) And I feel bad about this. Like, I know that this sounds like something that like the loser says, like, I was really just in it for the experience. (laughs) (laughs) But I really was, though. Uh. (laughs) Like, honestly, by the time like you get done with that five days of like grueling survival and then you know, finally getting to that wilderness kitchen where it's time to like actually cook for the competition Mm -hmm. and it's timed, you know, you have four hours to prepare your three dishes. Um, and then it's like, everything speeds up and it's crazy. And by the end of like, once you get your dishes plated and they're like, hands up, you know, whatever, drop your knives or I don't know what they say. (laughs) But, uh, you know, when it's all done, you're just so glad that it's over and you just want to go. Like, I think actually my opponent even said like, I just want to go take a shower. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to use a real bathroom. (laughs) Like that's all I want is just to go to the bathroom. You know, like once you're done with the whole thing and you've like accomplished it, Mm -hmm. like that's kind of how I saw the show was the show was called Chefs versus Wild. Yeah. You know, like, the, what we were really battling, you know, the, the real contest was surviving this, you know, adventure and then being able to create a three-course meal. Mm-hmm. And then whether or not it was better than, you know, Alan, you know, Chef Alan was my opponent, whether or not it was better than his, it came down to, like, you know, like, splitting hairs, you know? Like, oh, maybe one judge had a little bit more of an emotional connection to his dessert because it reminded her of something her grandmother makes. Mm, mm -hmm. Or, you know, um, I I picked the wrong color plate to put my entree on and it would have looked a lot better if I had had two seconds to change the plate out. You know, like little things like that. And at the end of the day, like, at the end of the day, like, you just don't even care. Mm -hmm. Because once you've accomplished something like that it's like man all right I did that yeah you know like the feeling of the feeling of accomplishment to have completed that challenge regardless of whether the judges liked my meal better than his or vice versa like it just didn't didn't really bother me like Mm -hmm. genuinely Alan won and I was like all right cool good job Alan
0: What's a win-win for you, anyways? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. like,
1: I, I, you know, we did it, and yeah, you did it, it. would have been cool to win. But again, it's not like there was like a fifty thousand dollars prize on the line mm-hmm. thing. Like, there was no prize. Yeah, so, that was my only like
0: question. Is like, <laughs> what what did the winner get? Because yeah. like I I might have missed the like
1: satisfaction of saying <laughs> that they won. Congratulations, Alan! You got it. <laughs>
0: because I was like maybe I missed the prize money or something <laughs> yeah, no, or maybe no. it's like a tournament but nope. I was just mainly watching it for you so <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yeah no there was there was no prize money there was no no bounty or anything mm-hmm. was, and so really yeah that was kind of how we all felt about it was like we well at the end we were like when are they going to tell us what the prize is <laughs> And then we were like, wait, we did all this and there's no yeah. prize. <laughs> I was like, I'm glad you won, Alan. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the prize is wilderness. Right. Yeah. Well, the prize Nature. is
1: The prize is an all expense paid trip, you to know, BC yeah. to BC to go on like the wildest adventure of my life. You know, I've never like, when are you ever going to have a challenge like that? That's not I mean, I'm sure there are people like that you know, go on vacation and like do these challenging vacations for themselves. But that's not me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like I don't just have a whim to go drop myself off in the wilderness and, mm. and do something like that. So just being given the opportunity to, to like experience that was made it worth it for sure. And you do it again. Uh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Even if they made me look like a bumbling falling down like montage of falling on my ass idiot on TV that's fine I don't care I'd, I'd do it again because <laughs> yeah it's just a, it's an adventure mm-hmm. you kind of once you that's the kind of not that I'm like this you know grizzled reality TV veteran now or anything but I've done a have done a couple of, of, of um, you know TV experiences like this I guess not like on the scope of this chefs versus wild one, but um, you know, you, that's kind of part of it is that you give your experience up into the hands of someone else. You, you have an experience that's your life and you know how you would tell that story and what it meant to you and how it looks to you. But at the end of, of the experience you just hand that over like here's these five days of my life you tell whatever story you want with it to the producers and the editors and whoever the behind the scenes people that put it together and turn it into a show Mm -hmm. and you get absolutely no control or say over that so once it's you know once it's out of your hands, that's just it. Yeah. <laughs> so you're kind of at the mercy of the reality TV overlords and <laughs> what they think is entertaining and what they think is good storytelling. Mm-hmm. Which is why, like, that's what we were talking about earlier is why, um, when it comes to Native representation, it's not just about making sure to check the box and cast a Native American chef. And, you know, have a couple Native American sur- survivalists on the show, which they did. And that's wonderful. Like, I'm really glad that they they represented, you know, people from our communities. There are two other um, survivalists on the show as contestants. And then me, the one Native chef that they cast. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of the judges, um, Valerie Seagrest, who's incredible. She's shoot. And so she, you know, as a judge, she's on every episode and is given a great platform to be able to talk about indigenous food and food culture and the importance of connection with the land. That's, you know, a big part of what the show is about. And and that's really great. But there's also got to be Native folks in the editing room, Native producers. There's got to be those behind the scenes uh, people from our communities telling our stories because that way you're really going to get a better um, sense of the people that are on the screen, mm-hmm. you know, like that's kind of how it came off for me at the end of the day when I watched the episode after all of that, that happened. And then I saw the episode and I was like, man, I wish that there would have been, I wish that there would have been someone like one of my homies in the film industry, you know, doing the storytelling or deciding the the way that the story was going to be presented Because I feel like I might have got a better shake, you know, as far as how my my representation turned out, because I feel like they missed a lot of opportunities to talk about the importance of indigenous food and the food sovereignty movement and my identity as a native chef. You know, they talked they talked they included some parts about like my career and and that now I i you know have a company and I cater native american foods but they really didn't dive into like the importance of it and the cultural significance and you know what it really means to me to do this work mm-hmm. you know it would have put it in a better context i think everything that was happening out there and the reasons i i chose certain things and and used ingredients in a certain way and you know being out there for 5 days on camera sun up to sundown you know i talked about it yeah. but when the decisions are made in the editing room, if there aren't native people that know how to tell that story, the story doesn't get told.
0: True. Yeah. Well, if you go back on,
1: yeah, if they invite me back, you know, sometimes they do those like, yeah, uh, those little, those, uh, you know, what is it like the all stars episodes? Yeah. Chefs versus wild all stars. Let's (laughs) give them a second chance. And then I'll go back out there and I will only speak words about indigenous <laughs> <Yes>. foods. <laughs> True. So they will have no choice. Yep. They'll be like, what do you think your challenges will be today? And I'll be like, the indigenous food sovereignty movement started and yep. you know, like, yep. you know <laughs> yep. I will only lecture out of my mouth <laughs> next time I'm on camera.
0: <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a plan. Yeah.
1: That's, that's my new. <laughs> so, you're if anyone up. if anyone from Hulu is listening.
0: Tune out this whole episode. <laughs> right. <if you've> <laughs> <I> <laughs> Pretend you didn't hear that. Yeah. Allegedly, we'll she'll do that.
1: Oh, allegedly.
0: <laughs> yeah. We'll see. Oh my gosh.
1: There's actually so I haven't really talked or said anything about this, um, mm-hmm. anywhere else. So this is like the I'm dropping the big news on your show. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm not sure when this is going to be coming out, but I actually did film an episode of another show on Hulu.
0: It'll be out. The Sorry, my second week of November. Um, is that enough time?
1: It might be. Okay. I think they they I know that they've announced the show. I don't think that they've announced any of like the um, participants, but this new show coming out on Hulu is um, it's called Searching for Soul Food. And it's uh, a chef from L.A. who specializes in soul food. And she goes on this journey all over the world, really. And um, she meets with people in different communities to find out what their version of soul food is. Like how does soul food represent in, in Native America or, you know, in, in all these different... Um, different ethnic communities she finds out like what is their soul food Mm -hmm. and so um we did an episode with them back in the springtime with my friends um Ashley and Amos Daly who are Osage and they just recently um bought some land on the Osage reservation like north of downtown Tulsa and um it's a pretty big piece of land. So they're working on like restoring that building a couple different tiny homes on the land. And like, so we, it was springtime. And so we showed a wild onion dinner. I showed the host how to dig for wild onions and make a, you know, prepare a traditional meal over a fire. We made fry bread. Um, I think I had a pot of beans going out there. And then we set up this table out in the, in their field and had, um, both of his grandmothers, Amos's grandmothers came and were able to enjoy the meal with us and you know so we were able to represent you know these you know three maybe even four three generations of his family around the table talking about what soul food means in native communities mm-hmm. And so that was really cool and um I didn't fall down one time <laughs> during that episode, so I think I'm safe. <laughs> <laughs> I think this one will look a little better. <laughs> than Chef's versus Wild. I am excited to see that one cuz it's a, it, we did, we talked a lot about, you know, um it was a, just a great group of native women and Amos sitting around this table mm-hmm. enjoying foods that we had foraged in the spring off of their land, you know, their um their uh Ashley, my friend who's land it is. She's a realtor who kind of like her whole thing is land back. Like she's through her realty company, real estate company, she's putting land back in the hands of, of native people by helping them become homeowners. And so, um, that's like a big part of what her passion is. And so we were able to show like, this is the connection we have to this land. She's able to, you know, buy this land back that, you know, never should have really been split up but that was the allotment era for you Mm -hmm. and you know putting that back into an osage family where they can you know have a relationship with the land again be able to celebrate things like wild onions in the springtime as a family so that's what we showed on that show and that'll be coming out soon whoa but again that that one's called searching for soul food
0: searching for soul food yeah
1: and that'll be on hulu
0: I'm looking forward to that one Yeah, yeah. Uh, Me
1: too And like I want to see What all the other You know that's the That's the TV that I like That I like to watch Is like I want to see what all The other soul foods are You know mm-hmm. And then like You know I'm excited to be able To show people what What soul food is to us Yeah Yeah So that's gonna be cool
0: Man that's exciting Yeah To go from one show To the next
1: I know it's crazy Yeah Again it all starts With these weird DMs <laughs> <laughs> I
0: guess i checking mine.
1: Yep, yep, yep.
0: <laughs> I always get weird ones about promotion and weird things to, uh, to sponsor me. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: But then they're usually like, and it's only a hundred and fifty dollars down. There was one something. thing
0: where it was like uh you know, like Manscaped. You ever heard of that Manscaped? Yeah. But mm-hmm. it was like a knockoff one, I guess. I don't know. But they messaged me and they were like, We want you to I forgot the name of it. It was some it was really weird. It was a weird name, but they were like, We'd like to sponsor you. And I was like, Okay. And I was like, Well, give me the info, you know. And I was like looking at their product and I was like, ah, I was like, Yeah, I can go with it, I guess. It's kind of like manscaped, you know. And then uh I was like, Yeah, send me info. So they sent me all this stuff and then at the bottom it said, All right. We're good to go. Just buy a kit for like $200. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was like, no, I'm not buying a kit.
1: Man, you took up all this time. (laughs) And and then now I find out it's like a pyramid scheme. (laughs) They're like, buy this kit and then give us phone numbers for five of your friends (laughs) so that we can shake them down. (laughs) Dang it.
0: Yeah. So I just blocked them. I think I blocked them, ignored them. I was like, damn it. Come on now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Not cool.
0: supposed to pay me
1: (laughs) (laughs) exactly that's how it's supposed to go
0: well i'm excited for the soul food show and i'm super excited that you got to be on chef versus wild i'm excited for you know your business too you know it came from a time where everything was seemed uncertain so Mm -hmm. you know i'm very excited for that um thank you me too probably wrap this up right here uh, there's anything yeah, else? Yeah, we've been
1: talking too much about stew, and like <sighs> I am starving right now. <laughs> me too.
0: Yeah, I was like, dang, we've been talking for what well, that clocks fast. But, <laughs> but I was like, dang. But uh, anything else you want to say? And then after that, you know, just kind of plug up where to find you and um, catch you.
1: Man, yeah, no, I don't. I don't think I have anything left to add to that. That was a good chat. Mm-hmm. But um, if you want to find me, um, go to burningcedar.com or burningcedar.org. Um, that's my website. And then um, you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook. It's at Burning Cedar Foods. I don't do Twitter or Snapchat or uh, TikTok even, even though I'm told many times that I should, I do not have the capacity <laughs> for TikTok. <laughs> I just can't. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Yeah, my content is disappointing. I'm sorry about that. But <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll do better, I promise. Just follow me. <laughs> let's get on TikTok. <laughs> oh, no, let's <laughs> I'm going to hire my 12-year-old stepdaughter Chloe as my senior director of TikTok, and she can just follow me around turning me into a TikTok That's superstar. That's the best way to do it. She's really good at it. Somebody else does. Like that. all her friends go to her and have mm-hmm. her like edit their TikTok videos. Yeah, she like puts together these fire little dance montage things. I'm like, all right.
0: <laughs> That's the way to do it. Somebody else has their kid just record them doing something and then like edits it and then puts it out. And I mean, it looks great. Yeah, I mean, just being on the app, and I was like, dang. <laughs> Have Natty do mine? No. I'm just
1: <laughs> oh, Natty. <laughs> She's like, I'm busy. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: But uh but thanks for coming on. I appreciate Thank it you, very much. Window. Um anytime you're welcome back, come back on the show if you got something going on. Um, cool. we'll promote it or just let me know. You know, I'm always down to help out however I can. Um everybody go follow her, check her out on Chef versus Wild and searching for Soul Food coming soon. Yes. So uh check out Okie Podcast on Instagram at Okie Podcast. My personal is at rustamus 49 uh, personal on facebook is russell sun eagle uh, check out okie podcast on apple spotify google podcast stitcher i would say google it and you would find it uh check out okie and check out unsolved mysteries of the reservation uh, on apple spotify google stitcher also google that you would find it and check us out on youtube unsolved Mysteries of the Res- unsolved mysteries of the reservation and on tiktok at reservation underscore mysteries so uh till next time everybody peace